Good morning. Uh, the text we're looking at this morning is from Luke chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, I've shared the story before with other people, but when I was a, a young parent and my kids were even smaller than they are now, uh, one of my children absolutely loved it when I read them a story. And the story that, that my child really, really wanted me to read every night, and this was for months in a row, every night, was a story of uh, the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. And if you might know that story, you know the story is about these three little pigs who each build a house of a different material. Uh, one built it out of sticks. The next one built it out of rock, straw, straw, sticks, brick. That's right. It's been a, it's been a few years. I'm grateful that I have not read that story. And uh, obviously, it's uh, it's when the pigs enter into the home of a house built with brick that the wolf is not able to blow the house down. And there's more to the story, but as I kept uh, reading this story every night, at some point, about a month and a half in, reading the story every night to my, my child, my son, sorry, son, I called you out, um, he said, Dad, uh, let's do something a little different tonight. I said, okay. He goes, I want to put a name to each of these pigs. And so every pig had a name. And so he gave a name, one of his friends uh, from school, he gave a name uh, for the pig who built the house out of straw. Then he gave one of his best friends uh, the pig who built the house um, out of sticks. And then, of course, he was the pig that had the house that was built out of brick. Of course, I was curious, and I asked him who the wolf was, and he says, well, of course, Dad, that's you. Um <laughs> Good, great parenting already, right? And, you know, I walked away thinking about that. And every night we started putting names to these wolves and to these pigs. And I realized, right, I realized that people do not desire to just listen to a story. People desire to be a part of the story. Any good movie, any good book, any, any of those favorites that you have, it's because you are drawn into the story and you see yourself as part of that story. You see, one of the most important things about parables with Jesus is Jesus is asking the audience to not just listen to the story, not just pay attention to the story, but be drawn into the story, to be one of the characters, to put names and faces on the character. And the, and the parable we are looking at this morning is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think we've done a pretty good job, for the most part, on putting names and faces on these particular characters. One of the main themes or main lessons that we've gotten over the years growing up, if many of us have heard a sermon or a class, is we are called and challenged to become the good Samaritan. And that's kind of the push for us. But one thing I do like about parables is Jesus also gives us an opportunity to read the story differently, to imagine the story in new and fresh ways. And so hopefully I can do that with you this morning. Uh, the reality is, is none of us can leave Jerusalem. All of us have to leave Jerusalem and make our way to Jericho. And what I mean by that is life isn't uh, just a one-stop shop, right? Life is a journey, and you're moving from one place to another. And I think this is really important. Jesus is teaching us that no person can avoid this journey. 
that journey, that this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho will have its fair share of uncertainties, will have unexpected hope and unexpected help. There will be disruptions. And maybe most importantly, one that we should never neglect, is that this journey called life often has a fair share of pain and suffering. And I imagine some of you know that um, close to heart even this morning. But it's in our DNA. It's in our DNA to ignore that part of life, to somehow figure out a way to navigate around the pain and suffering. I don't necessarily believe the Levites and the priests were bad people. I believe what they were doing is they were trying to walk away or ignore what was really in front of them. And what was in front of them was the pain and the hurt and the disruptions and the distractions and the robbing of life. And they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to do about it. As parents, we would love if our kids would never experience difficulty. And so we try to do everything we can as parents to try to give them a life where there's no pain and suffering. And yet that is impossible. As voters, we try everything we can in legislation to make our lives better. And yet that's not a reality. And we try everything we can, especially those of us with dispensable income, to save up for emergencies and a good or great retirement. And, well, um, some of us are maybe realizing that's not a reality or even a possibility. Even as churches, uh, we, we do everything we can, and we think often what means sacred means what's easy or what's safe or the things that we should and could avoid But the truth is we can't run from those areas of church life. And we can't run from the areas of life that rob us, that often causes pain and suffering. The things in life that strip us down and and leave us to die. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are hard pressed on every side. We're not crushed, perplexed, not in despair, but we're persecuted. We're not abandoned but we're struck down. We're not destroyed. You see, even all the writers, including Jesus and Paul thereafter, they, they, don't, they don't tell us that a life of faith, this faithful journey, is, is all a bunch of roses and it's just happy and, and good, that there's, there's real pain and there's real suffering. Um, and so I could spend uh, the rest of the sermon just speaking about the, the ways or identify the ways on how we ourselves can get robbed in life. Right? I could talk about all the pain of losing someone, of disease, of the pain of sin, of addictions or insecurities, anger. I, I can share my story with you. A few years ago, uh, I, I got news that I had cancer, and I'm cancer-free right now, and I'm grateful for that. I could share with you the story about my mom who currently has stage 4 incurable cancer. We know too well about the, the sadness of cancer. We just see it in our prayer requests, right? I could tell you about Michael Taylor, a young man, and I officiated his funeral. He was 21 years old, he was engaged, and he was, he was struck by a car last week. These are all terrible, terrible stories that, that unfortunately and sadly are the realities of the journey of life. But what I want to talk about directly, because I'm the guest preacher, is the pain and suffering that exists within our churches. 
Uh, I shared this with my church in recent months, and this is just a reality. It's obvious. This may or may not be true for the Kerrville Church of Christ, but it's something we need to name, and it's something we need to, to understand, and that is mainline churches of Christ, like our own, Kerrville Church of Christ, New Braunfels Church of Christ, in the last three years, especially the last three years, the decline in churches of Christ are staggering. Thousands are leaving a month. Hundreds of churches are closing their doors a year in the last three years. If this trend continues, the heritage that we know and love could be suffering tremendously, not just in a North American scale, but at a global scale, in not far future, but in your lifetime. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about struggles and issues about Church of Christ, and, and it was an older gentleman, and, and he says, well, you know, hopefully I can just die and the next generation can deal with it. Sorry, there's not one of you in this room and I heard stories of some of you in your 90s. I get it. But there's not one of you in this room that is too old to deal with some of the issues that we're dealing with in Churches of Christ. Because we're getting older in our demographics, and the younger are leaving. And my concern is this, right? First, I don't want to talk about the metrics. I have a good friend of mine, Josh Jackson, who's a preacher. He says metrics, um, you know, metrics causes us or leads to death. Um, and, there's, and I don't even want to talk about all the reasons to decline. I just want to mention it. But what I want to say about that is most of us, similar to Levites and priests, we put our heads down and we either, what, A, we want to ignore the pain or the struggle, or we just want to walk away from it, hoping it goes away. But here's the irony of any type of pain. Ignoring the suffering and walking away from the brokenness is the fastest route to death. Uh, and so uh, there's two important people that I want to talk about this morning in this story. The one you're most familiar with is the Good Samaritan. But I want to actually spend most of our time on the one who has been robbed. In fact, I want to make an appeal to you that maybe the person that we are in the story is not the Good Samaritan, but maybe we are the person that has been robbed, that has been left to die on the side of the road. And I don't know if you've ever thought of you being that character in the story, but I think it's important for us as we consider this text. right? Just imagine that we are supposed to be this person who's been robbed. Now let's make this a lesson not just on suffering, but let's make this a lesson on how we act and behave when we are caught in the midst of suffering. Surely us Christians, we're not the ones that have been robbed. That's for somebody else. We have all the answers. We have salvation to give. What could anyone, especially a Samaritan, offer us? But the truth is, we don't have all the answers. And there is true power in vulnerability. There is true power in humility. And there is true power in suffering. And the cross reminds us of that. We are agents of suffering. We can model the world on how people ought to behave when faced with realities called life. We could be the examples of what it means when life 
brings disruptions and uncertainties and pain and suffering. I mean, just think about it. the reason why the Good Samaritan took notice of this man, the reason why he saw him in the text as took pity on him was because I, I believe he imagined himself being in that position of brokenness. That he himself knows what it feels like to be isolated, to be marginalized, to be in pain. In fact, let me remind all of us this morning that the first response in Christianity has nothing to do with us. God in rich power and in mercy gifted us with grace and salvation that can only be found through Jesus Christ. In fact, God continued to gift us, even after he gifted us through Jesus. He gifted us through the Holy Spirit. He gifted us with this beautiful local church. We are recipients of gifts, right? And that's who we are. And these gifts, we don't deserve them. We were robbed on the road. We were left to die. And through Jesus, the ultimate good Samaritan, we were given life. And life in abundance. And that's the posture we should have as God's people. Our first thought when thinking about anything life is reminding ourselves that we were left to die, but because of the power and the grace and the mercy found only in Jesus Christ, we have received new life. Think about it. All right? You just got robbed. Who are you going to ask help from? If you just got robbed, who are you going to ask to help you? If, if I come by uh, and you, you're sitting there and you got robbed, you're going to say, ah, I don't want your help. Yeah, you look, you look a little weird, right? No, you're not going to do that. Right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna receive the help where the help is given. You're going to be open to help. You're going to say, I'll take that. I'll take that. Yes, please help me, help me. There are situations in life where we are so desperate. Again, bringing up my cancer, I was a very modest person. I had this high sense of dignity, and maybe this is way too much information for you, but within a weekend, I got so naked in front of so many people, I lost all of my self-worth and dignity. Anyone who's been really, really sick knows exactly what I'm talking about. And honestly, at that point, I could care less. All I wanted was help and to get this cancer out of me. It didn't matter. I didn't put conditions on the nurse. I didn't put conditions on the doctor. I didn't put conditions on the elders and spouses who came and prayed over me. Right? We would, we would never place conditions on the people who are willing to help us, especially when we are in time of desperate need. So then why do we think it's okay to place conditions on who we are willing to serve? As people that have been robbed, we would never place conditions on who would help us. But sometimes, as good Samaritans, we choose who we are willing and not willing to serve. You know, once we see our place of woundedness and brokenness and saved by the ultimate good Samaritan Jesus, then, it's only then can we start with this attitude or this heart of being a good Samaritan. And so I want to kind of talk about the rest of our time. How can we create a good Samaritan culture within our churches? 
And there are a number of ways to be a good Samaritan, serving the community, making yourself available, be attentive to those around you, being open to that maybe God is working your life in unexpected ways and helping those who can't help themselves, doing it in a manner, in a way that you don't get any personal glory out of it. All those are good things. But I want to specifically talk about hospitality. My sermon title is Hostile Hospitality or Hostile Hospitality. And the reason why it's titled that is because... I believe that until we understand our own experience of hostility in our lives, we cannot truly understand the riches and depth of hospitality. When I talk about hospitality, I'm not talking about southern hospitality. Southern hospitality is nice. It's good. But it's entertainment, right? Christian hospitality is becoming the vulnerable host so that the guests can be welcomed in love. The vulnerable host who themselves has experienced and understood the journey of woundedness, the journey of pain and suffering. I think about Jesus and all his table stories. So if we removed all those table stories out of the Gospels, our Gospels would be, would be shrinked incredibly, right? There are so many stories after another of Jesus uh, being at the table. In, in most of those stories, if not all of them, was Jesus the guest or the host? Jesus was the guest, because a host usually means what? You're at your house. Does anyone know about Jesus' house in the Gospels? No, because Jesus is always brilliantly going into other people's homes. Now, oftentimes, he's the, the awkward guest that invites himself, but what's really beautiful about this is that even though he's the guest, somehow in the midst of that meal and that time, he turns from guest to host. Because when we think about host, we think the host is the one that offers the most, right? And so host doesn't necessarily mean the home you own or the table you have. We often believe Jesus is the good host because he offers the most. But the reality is he's guest first before he can open himself up to the people around the table to offer them something way richer than the food that's in front of them. Because, again, he connects. He makes himself transparent and vulnerable. He is open. He is a gracious guest. Because he understands humans. He understands woundedness. He understands suffering. He understands a a, a woman who bled for 12 years. He understands Zacchaeus. He understands even the religious leaders that question him. He understands Peter's mother-in-law. He understands Jairus. He understands all these different homes that he visited. Because he's human. He understands their woundedness and their suffering. And oftentimes, it's their own woundedness and suffering that heals them. The statement he makes over and over again, right, it's it's because of your faith that you've been healed. Uh, There's been good research out lately. It just came out this year. I'd recommend it, especially to our, our youth ministers from Barna. And Barna came out with research about households. Barna is a, a big, massive researching group, and they've done almost everything with churches. This last year, they finally uh, gave us something, and they talked with homes, households. They call it households and not families because only 25% of America is now considered a nuclear family or nuclear household. Nuclear means mom, dad, and kids, right? And the reason why that's important is because one of the eye-opening things that Barna wanted to share with churches about this research is is that if your church 
mission is primarily shaped towards nuclear families, families with parents and kids in them, and that's your family ministry, then you're only reaching out to 25% of households in America. And so households in America are way more blended, and they're a lot more diverse and different uh, than just mom and dad and children, right? And, and there's a lot, there's an increase of intergenerational homes, there's an increase of, of blended families, uh, and all those different types of families. And so in the midst of this research, what they wanted to find out was, because they believe church and household are very similar, they wanted to find out what makes a household spiritually vibrant. And they had different categories. They had devotional households. And these households were the type of households where, where families would come together and say prayers together or have, um, have Bible studies together. They had fun households where they'd go out and have a good time and vacation together. And what they found out, and there's all these different types of descriptions of households, but what they found out that really made a home spiritually vibrant is when households would invite other families into their home. They would break bread together. They would share meal together. That is what makes a spiritually vibrant home. And there's a lot of psychology behind it because it just, you know, you know how it is when you invite somebody over to your home, you're scrambling to get your house clean, you're cooking. It's a very vulnerable experience. You hope they don't go into this bedroom. Uh, you hope they don't, go, they don't see your garage. Um, I, I don't know if I can cut my grass. Kids don't go out in the backyard. I wasn't able to pick up dog doo-doo this morning. You know what I'm saying. Like, are all these things that are happening going on in your mind? Um, it's a very stressful event for the bees boars when somebody's coming over because we're in this clean mode. Kids are trying to not be a part of it, right? But that's the most beautiful time where you can be transparent in who you are is when you welcome people into your home. That's the time where you can share your story about how once you were robbed and left to die on the side of the road, but how the good Samaritan Jesus gave you full and abundant life. I think now more than ever, in a society that lacks civility, in a society where we no longer have enough time for each other, right? How many times have you asked somebody, even within, maybe this morning, I'm sorry if you said this, how are you doing? And your response is, oh, I'm so busy right now. Right? And um, so I, I, I started telling people who tell me they're busy, so you may not want to tell me that. Um, I say, you're not busy, you're just distracted. Right? Because nobody, nobody is too busy for relationships. And, and nobody is too busy to be a parent or to be a spouse or, or, or to, to be a part of a faith community. Right? That's not busy. It just means you have way too much stuff in your life. And those other things in your life, to me, are just simple distractions. And I know they're difficult distractions because those distractions give you meaning in life. But maybe we need to reconsider what is a distraction and what gives us true life and meaning. So we don't have enough time for each other. And, and, and I, I just brought up a second ago, lack of civility. I don't need to talk about that. But it, you just don't see much respect for one another anymore. Uh, James says that the tongue is what? Fire? I, I think if James wrote the book today, he would say the keyboard is fire. Right? And we need to tame the keyboards and what we type and what we write and what we like and what we send and share. 
Um, and, then, and then one of my most saddest ones is, is that as busy and globally connected we are as a society, we are so disconnected and isolated from one another, aren't we? Like, it's incredible that we are now so connected and global. Y'all even have a connections minister, which I think is incredible. But the truth is, and the reason why you hired a connections minister is because people just aren't connected. Because we're so, we live in a culture of individualism, of isolation and loneliness. Uh, I think that's a, a primary issue I see when I have conversations with people, is people are just lonely. And so with the lack of civility and with not enough time for one another and with isolation and loneliness, the prescription for all of those is hospitality, is conditioning ourselves to be with one another, conditioning ourselves to have converse, that's okay, have conversations with one another. Um, and good job. And condition ourselves to be around the table together. St. Francis of Assisi uh, says, preach the gospel all times, and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. The good Samaritan, when he helped the person who was robbed, and he took him, and he took him to the inn, he cared for him, he spent resources, time, and money on him, I don't know how many words were exchanged. In fact, I don't know how many words you can exchange with somebody who was just robbed and left to die. But I guarantee you, the Good Samaritan preached one of the best sermons in his life at that day. You think We are called to be people of hospitality, people of welcome. And again, the only way that we can truly identify with the richness of loving others is if we once again embrace and understand that we ourselves have experienced hostility. What was Christ's most hospitable response? The crucifixion. There's nothing more hospitable in all of Scripture than the crucifixion. Because hospitality is about giving up oneself for the sake of the other giving up your time, giving up your resources, giving up your money, giving up your sacred space, all these different things that we have found in our life to be sacred, we give those up completely for the other. And so Romans chapter 12, it's uh, verses 1, it's, it's, a, it's one of those uh, fun passages about you know what it looks like to be transforming worship, experience worship, but uh, re- remind yourselves early on in that, that verse of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says that the spiritual act of worship essentially is you sacrificing yourself. And in Scripture, what does it mean to sacrifice yourself? It means to die. So as beautiful as that passage is, often read in the context of worship, it's actually a pretty edgy, difficult Scripture to take. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26 says, What? To save your life, you must lose your life. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, probably one of our favorites is from Luke chapter 9, the same gospel we read this morning. It says, What? Take up your cross, your cross, and follow me. Philippians chapter 1 says, To live in Christ is to die is 
gain. Uh, I try to remind people that at the heart of the gospel is Jesus died for you and me. And I think that's a great message. But I think that's the first step. Because if we only do that, we're standing over here. And I, I don't have a microphone. I'm sorry, but i got to show you. So we're standing over here. We're saying, Jesus, you died for you, uh, for you and me. Thank you. And then Jesus walks over here. He dies on the cross. We're grateful. We're thankful. And then Jesus gets off the cross and he experiences resurrection. If we continue to stand over here and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for you and me, then we ourselves are not going to experience the full gospel. The full gospel requires us to also be blessed, crucified, take up your cross, and follow me. In fact, uh, we're Church of Christ. We are big into baptism, right? Baptism uh, begins with the confession statement. And the confession statement is, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? That's another version of saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. But that isn't just what baptism is. Baptism also requires what? For you to be buried in water, to die to your old self. That is a symbol of what? The crucifixion. So you have to experience the crucifixion. But as Levites and priests... We want to ignore the pain and suffering that often exists on the journey of life. But the reality is, is that until you can experience the fullness of the crucifixion, you won't be able to understand the fullness of the resurrection. Because as resurrected people, we understand the depths of hostility. And the only way we're going to be able to teach the people and the world around us is to show them hospitality, to welcome them, to receive them, to invite them to the table, to share with them our own story of our journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, this might be a very strange request from a guest preacher. But maybe we should all embrace our wounds and our suffering and our own pleas for help. Because I really believe it's in that position of loss that we can embrace Christ and Christ being the ultimate good Samaritan for us. Uh, may we always be people of welcome and hospitality, not because of entertainment not because it's the Christian thing to do, because we ourselves were once lost, and now we are found. Let's continue on in our worship this morning.